0: All right, Psalm nineteen, we'll begin reading in verse seven and read to the end of the chapter. Psalm nineteen seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression." Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. You can be seated.
1: Some years ago, when I was living in Romania, there was a young boy who had been living at the... uh, CAM orphanage at that that time by the name of Joseph, And he proudly showed me a new Bible that someone had given to him. He was quite pleased with it. And I noticed that it was an Orthodox Bible, The, the Bible, the version that the Orthodox used, which was slightly different than the Romanian version that we were familiar with. And I mentioned that to him, and he asked, well, what's the difference? So I pointed out a few differences to him and showed him some places where the the references did not line up with the references in the Bible we used. And I remember him looking at me with eyes filled with concern and asked, asking, but is this the Bible, this book that he had been given? And I replied, well, it's, it's their Bible. But he wasn't satisfied with that. And he looked at me again. He said, but is it the Bible? Yosef was not the first person to ask that question when presented with different versions. And perhaps you've asked that question yourself. The sermon I'm preaching this morning is the assignment I was given for the circuit sermons that we're um, sharing in the, in the different churches And I think it's a very pertinent subject. It's a subject that is of interest to me. At the same time, I don't approach this without a degree of trepidation. And the reason for that is, for some, it might not seem like a very inspirational subject. It's not a typical Sunday morning sermon. In a sense, I feel more like I'm teaching a class than than preaching a message. I'm talking about the Bible, but a lot of the information I'll be giving is not necessarily from the Bible. Uh, Typically, when I prepare messages, I do not rely very heavily on commentaries, but for this subject, I did need to do quite a bit of research and uh, look at uh, a number of different resources. And uh, I'll just mention some of those there. One of them is a book written by or published by CLP The Story Behind the Versions. And several other um, audio sources I listened to, the issue of Bible versions by Jeff Bannister, the translation of scripture by Dr. Alan Cairns, and Bible versions examined by by D.A. White. Parts of the message you might feel are a little bit tedious, but I, I ask that you try to follow and stick with me because I think it's foundational for some of the things that we'll be looking at later on. I mentioned I don't approach this without some trepidation, and the other reason for that is that this is a hot-button subject for a lot of people. A lot of people have some opinions. A lot of people have some pretty strong opinions, and some people don't even know why they have those opinions, and they they defend them quite strongly. I'll I'll give you a few examples of quotes that I heard or conversations that I've had to... um, to just illustrate the the feelings that people have about this. When I was attending SMBI, there was a young man I was attending there with that many of you know, lives locally here. And one of his favorite quotes, when we talked about translations, he'd like to say, well, if King James would be alive today, he would read the NIV. That was his opinion. There's another man that a lot of you know. He says, oh, the NIV, that stands for nearly infallible version. It says the Bible is infallible, but the NIV is only nearly infallible. Someone else um, has made the quote a number of times. Hundreds of years ago, people died so that there would be a translation available that was easily understood in the common language. And he went on to say, so why do so many people today insist that we read something that people don't understand? That was his take on it. When I was living in Romania, we had a visitor one time from the States, and he was um, asking about Romanian Christians, Romanian churches, and he asked about the Romanian Bible. What Bible do these people use? And then he asked a question. He said, well, was the Romanian Bible translated from the King James Version? And his implication was that if it was translated from anything else, it would not be an accurate Bible. So when he asked if it was translated from the King James Version, I think he was rather shocked when I replied, I would certainly hope not. And I went on to explain, and it made a little more sense to him when I explained to him that the King James Version itself is a translation. So if you're translating from a translation, you're getting farther and farther away from the original. I would hope they would go back as close to the original to translate as possible. And I've met other people who are quite rigid in their views. When I was working for Lantern Books, um, we sold Bibles. We sold lots of Christian literature. There was one particular man that I had quite a bit of contact with. Some people do not want you to sell any version other than the King James Version. This man went a step further. He did not want any book of any type sold in his store that quoted any verse from any Bible other than the King James Version. If that book quoted a verse from any other translation, that book was out of there in his opinion. So I say people have strong opinions about this. So you see why I say people have strong opinions. Somewhat little or nothing to do with the King James, while others will not accept anything but to King James. Some people simply don't know what to choose. Who is right? How can we know? Is it merely a matter of preference? Or is there more involved? I was determined from the beginning to try to approach this subject as objectively as possible. To look at it with a desire To learn, impartially, I found that to be rather challenging because most of the sources that I found, I felt were written with a conclusion in mind before the people even started and their only or their primary motive was to defend their position rather than to look at things objectively. The most objective source that I read was this book, which I mentioned earlier, from Christian Light Publications, written by Rodney Yoder, The Story Behind the Versions. If you're interested in looking at it farther, I think this book gives some very objective information that you uh, might find helpful. I'd like to look at a number of different aspects here, Um, background moving into this. First of all, just a little bit on an appreciation for God's word, an appreciation for God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. This verse is a verse, or these verses are often quoted, and it is clear from these verses that the early Christians in New Testament times viewed the words of the Bible as the words of God. That should give us an appreciation for God's word. Second Peter 1.21 For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So it did not come from man it came by the Holy, holy Spirit. So one way that God spoke the words of the Bible was by giving words to holy men who then spoke or wrote down these words, a very high regard for the Scripture. And John ten thirty five. these are the words of Jesus himself. He says the Scripture, that Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus was saying what God's Word says will stand. It cannot be broken. I'd like to just give a little bit of an overview, very briefly. So many of these points could be developed much farther, and could, uh, there's a lot more could be said, and I'm going to try to uh, not get too bogged down in some of these details. But looking a little bit at the transmission of God's Word. And I'm going to be looking primarily from the, from the time of Christ onward. Ancient manuscripts were hand-copied, meticulously copied, Word for word, letter by letter, on scrolls made from papyrus, which was from a type a reed-type plant that was made into something you could write on. Later, on parchment made from animal skins, written with crude writing instruments. Not only could they not type it out, neither did they have a ballpoint pen that they could write with. Crude writing instruments. It was very tedious work. But nevertheless, it was considered very important work. And many times when a scribe would finish copying a page, he would go back and count, not the words, but count the letters on the original. And then he would count the letters on what he wrote to make sure that he did not miss a single letter. It was very tedious work a scroll containing the book of Isaiah that was preserved. This scroll was over 20 feet long. So you can see how some of that uh, was difficult. One of these early scribes wrote this. He said, you may think writing is not especially difficult. Let me tell you that it is an arduous task. It damages your eyesight, bends your spine, squeezes your stomach, cramps your hand, and makes your whole body ache. So those were the ancient manuscripts. That takes us up to the Middle Ages, up to the the 1500s or so, up to that time period. In the monasteries, this work was continued, uh, not necessarily in the original languages, but sometimes in other languages. And again, it was given very high priority. And the people who would would, uh, transfer these, uh, there would be disciplinary measures established that would be carried out if they uh, failed to do their job well. It's interesting to read some of them. If they didn't keep their parchment pages neat and clean, they could be disciplined. And uh, one writer said that if uh, if one of these monks would break his pen in a fit of anger when he found that he made a mistake at the end of an otherwise perfect page, he could be disciplined. So you imagine, you spend all this time copying an entire page, and near the end of it, you make a mistake, and the whole page is ruined. Sometimes they would um, obviously get frustrated. Well, it wasn't until almost 1500s, 1456, that Gutenberg invented the movable-type printing press, which took the transmission of written word to a whole new level. And for the first time in history, books could be easily reprinted and became affordable to the common man. Hundreds of identical copies could be produced relatively simply. And from the time of his invention, within a 50-year period, there were more than 1,000 print shops that had already printed 2 million books. And the most common book printed was the Bible. So just to summarize that, from the time of Christ, for the next 1500 years, the only Bibles were handwritten copies, tediously reproduced. And only in the last 500 years, a relatively small portion of time, have printed copies been available. So, the idea of a printed copy of the Bible is actually a fairly recent development in just the last 500 years. During that time leading up to that, people would give their lives to have an understandable version. So, up until the 1500s, the Bible existed only in rare handwritten copies or portions of the Bible available only to a privileged few. Uh, The original was in Hebrew and Greek. At this point, it had been translated into Latin and some other languages as well. But still, the copies were rare. And the religious elite who did have access to these, often, it seems their goal, instead of passing on the truths of God's word, their goal was to conceal it and to keep it hidden from the people. And this was the setting into which William Tyndall was born. He was frustrated with that. It it was his life passion passion that everyone should have a Bible that they can read and understand. And he once made the statement. He said, if God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth a plow to know more of the scripture than the Pope does. He was saying the people that have the Bible don't study it, they don't teach it, they don't understand it, and that's not right. The common man should be able to understand it. That became his life's passion and led him through tremendous danger and eventually death. He was tied to a stake, strangled, and his body burned to ashes because of people who did not appreciate what he was doing. Well, the vision of William Tyndall has been carried on by hundreds and thousands of people. And even today, there are highly trained people who work and sometimes die for the sake of putting the Bible into one more language, the language of one more tribe. But even in our language today, we have dozens of translations, many of which have appeared during our lifetimes. And with these translations come questions, confusion, misunderstandings. Sometimes people use a Bible they do not understand well, while others may use a Bible that sacrifices accuracy for the sake of readability. So how can we know? And again, I said some of this is getting into some details here, but I think it's foundational for what we want to move into later on. I'd like to take a look at... Bible text, and I'm I'm using some different words here in in different ways. When I use the word manuscript, I'm describing something that was handwritten and passed on by early scribes and, and monks and so forth, some copies of which are preserved even till today. I refer to those as manuscripts, but then texts I'm referring to as a printed compilation of those Manuscripts. And I'd like to look at some of those printed compilations that are available today. Now, it would be nice if we had the original manuscripts that were written by Moses and Isaiah and John the Baptist, or John and uh, Paul and so forth, but we do not. The most original thing that we have is handwritten copies of handwritten copies passed down by humans who are very prone to error. That's what we have to work with. But we have today 5,000 copies or portions of these handwritten manuscripts that are still in existence. Of these 5,000 manuscripts, no two are identical. That may be alarming to you. Well, what do we have to work with? But remember, there are Thousands of copies. Many of the differences are minor and obvious. Maybe a letter missing from a word or something like that, that it's obvious from comparing what it's supposed to be. A lot of them are are not that significant. Some of them, however, are more significant. Some manuscripts have verses or entire passages that do not appear in one manuscript and do appear in another manuscript. And I think most of us are aware that if you compare versions, some versions have verses that other versions do not have. And depending on what version you read, there may be a footnote that includes it, but says this was not found in certain texts or, or something like that. What do we do with that? I heard a beachy minister refer to these missing texts in some translations, and very boldly and vehemently declare. He said, The Bible says that if any man shall take away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God shall take away his part in the book of life. He said the translators of these versions have taken away part of God's word, and God's going to remove their names from the book of life. And it seemed like his sentiment that he expressed was that if you have any version in which certain texts are missing, the best thing you can do is take that and burn it. Is he right? Should we share his alarm? Now, the same passage that he quoted also says that if any man shall add on to these things, God shall add on to him the plagues that are written in this book. So how do we know if these verses are added or if they are deleted? What do we do with that? When thousands of manuscripts have survived, scholars can take these manuscripts and compare one with another and with another and with another. Suppose we had 10 copies of a certain article, a lengthy article. Every one of these copies has at least one mistake in it somewhere. But for any given portion of that passage, nine copies would be identical. This copy might have a mistake in this paragraph, but nine are the same in this paragraph. Another paragraph, another one might have a mistake, but these nine are the same. So if you compare the majority of manuscripts, you can come up with something that we feel is pretty reliable. Today, there are three... Basic texts that have been compiled from these manuscripts, and I'll just mention those here. Uh, try not to get bogged down in them too much. The first is called the Textus Receptus, which is a Latin phrase, which basically means the received, basically means the received text. And this was a printed Greek text compiled largely in the 1500s largely by a man named Erasmus. Some of you may recognize that name. He collected some Greek manuscripts, worked through them, compiled them, and printed them so that we had a printed text to work off of. And uh, I, I won't go into a lot of details about that, um, this text, text does have a few weaknesses. It was pretty hastily compiled. Erasmus put this together pretty quickly. However, it was edited over a period of years. Another weakness is it was based on a relatively small number of Greek manuscripts. And a third weakness, at least what I consider to be a weakness, is part of the what they call the received text, was actually taken from the Vulgate, which was a Latin translation of the manuscripts. So part of this was translated from Greek into Latin and then back into Greek. So it it doesn't use the original. However, this text that was compiled has stood as a standard for nearly 300 years. For nearly 300 years, it was the only compilation that was used. Then along came in the um, 1800s, late 1800s to early, mid-1900s, a new compilation. And in the meantime, some older manuscripts were found. So now this text, text, known as the Nessel-Alland text, based on the name of two people who worked on it, took these older manuscripts that were that were found after the received text was compiled and took these older manuscripts and formulated this new text. So they felt the advantage was that this text was based on older manuscripts. A lot of your modern translations are based on this text, using the premise that we're going back to the oldest manuscripts. It's commonly used in uh, nearly all of the more recent translations. Now, this, these old manuscripts were missing certain verses and certain Bibles, and that's why some versions today uh, have certain verses missing. Well, then there's the third, which is called the majority text. This was developed more recently. This text, the advantage of it is it is based on the widest number of manuscripts available. This took a, l- a large number of manuscripts. The received text was based on a relatively small number, as well as the nestle allen text, a relatively small number, which is older. This text, the majority text, is based on the idea that the most original thoughts will be carried through in the largest majority of the manuscripts. So it doesn't give priority just to a few old ones, but to the majority of manuscripts that were passed down. It's interesting that this text compares very closely to the received text. The received text and the majority text are very similar, and many conservatives would consider this majority text to be one of the more reliable today. Now, I'd like to look at something else that I feel is very important, and that is translation styles. I'd like to ask a question. Is translation a science or an art? Is translation a science or an art? A science is something that is very objective, it's precise, it's mathematical, it's right or wrong. For example, if you would ask a scientist to describe water, he might tell you that when two atoms of hydrogen are combined with an atom of oxygen, you have water. That's very precise. He is right. You can't argue that. You can't take one item of hydrogen. You can't take three item- atoms of hydrogen. Anything else would not be water. That's a science. Or is translation an art? An art is something that is a lot more vague, ambiguous. Many possibilities, many right options. So if you would ask an artist to describe water, or to depict water, or maybe you're going to get a little more precise, ask an artist to depict a man or a boy enjoying water. What picture comes to your mind? If you would draw a picture depicting someone enjoying water, what would come to your mind? Well, maybe something like that. I don't think I would be enjoying that if I'd be in that position. I'd feel a little bit overwhelmed. And I probably soon would be overwhelmed. But maybe that's what someone thinks of when they think of someone enjoying water. Someone else might think of that. There again, some of us would not be enjoying that position very much. Others might think it looks pretty enjoyable. Is that what you think when you think of water? That picture isn't very bright. Hopefully you can make out what it is. It's a boy sitting on a dock fishing at sunlight. So now you ask, which one of these is correct? You might say, well, they're all correct. Well, are they? Maybe none of them are correct. Suppose that the person who commissioned the artist worked for a water conditioning company, and what he really wanted was a boy enjoying water. You see how there can be tremendous variation, and they give totally different perspectives. And they're all someone enjoying water. So, you see, this is an art. So, now I come back to the question what is translation? Is translation a science or is it an art? Obviously, it has elements of both. But generally, translators are going to lean one way or the other. They're going to lean more towards the science aspect or they're going to lean more towards the art aspect. And those of you who speak, two languages understand that many times a sentence in one language cannot really be translated word-for-word in the same order in another language and make logical sense there is a bit of an art to it you need to understand both languages you need to make the application there are different ways of saying the same thing some are more effective than others so it is an art At the same time, things can be translated incorrectly. So it is a science as well. It's a combination. And finding the balance can be challenging. So, is translation a science or an art? There are two approaches used in Bible translation. Two very distinct approaches. One of them is known as formal equivalence. And this uses the word as the basic unit And it operates on the premise that the most precise way of reproducing the meaning is to translate word-for-word and to maintain sentence structure as much as possible. It's known as word-for-word translation. So that's more of a science. The other method that is used is known as dynamic equivalent, which is a thought-for-thought translation. It considers the thought to be the basic unit. And it attempts to convey thoughts rather than to translate individual words. This would be more of an art approach. So which is better? Or how do these really compare? Formal equivalence tries to tell you what something says. Dynamic equivalence tries to tell you what it means. A little bit later, we're going to be looking at several different translations, and I'll be giving you a little bit of an idea which one of these they use to give you an idea of which you might determine is more reliable. So formal equivalence tries to tell you what it says, while dynamic equivalence tries to tell you what it means. Dynamic equivalence obviously depends more heavily on the opinions of the translators because their thoughts are going to come through, their personal perspectives will seep in. Dynamic equivalence makes the text easier to read. It's more readable. It might sacrifice accuracy, but it improves readability. So which is better? That is the question. I'll give you an illustration that affects how I feel about this Before I moved to Romania, I knew very little Romanian. I barely understood a word. Eventually, I would sometimes preach in Romanian. But there was a time in between there when I pretty much understood the language, but had not mastered it well enough to be able to preach in it. So if I preached, I would use an interpreter. And understanding the language they were interpreting into, sometimes that was frustrating for me. Because I understood how he interpreted it, and it wasn't always the way I said it, or the way I thought I said it, or the way I intended to say it. And often I chose how I said something because of a point that I wanted to make, and then when the interpreter would say it in a different way, it would not lead up to what I wanted to say. And usually in that case, I would just repeat the thought until he said it the way I wanted it to. So not only was it frustrating for me, but it was sometimes frustrating for him as well. But I wonder if sometimes when God looks at translations of the Bible, he might feel the same way. And he might say, but that's not what I said. You didn't carry my thought through So, which is better, this formal equivalence or the dynamic equivalence? Our churches take a strong position on literal interpretation of the Bible. And I think we do well also to be pretty strong on the literal translation of the Bible. So, is dynamic equivalence wrong? Not necessarily. Sometimes it's an improvement. Sometimes it's necessary. And I think every translation uses it to some degree. You almost have to. But generally speaking, um, I think it tends to be the weaker method. And I'll just uh, make a bit of a footnote on this yet. When you use dynamic equivalence, how far do you go and where do you stop? Dynamic equivalence is actually a step towards paraphrasing, which is simply putting something into your own language, your own thought. And there have been many paraphrases of the Bible. Many of them were designed to appeal to a specific group of people. And I'll just give one example, which takes this dynamic equivalence idea to an extreme. At least I feel that it does. People that use this often take um, extra liberties, Back in the 1970s, there was a man by the name of Clarence Jordan who wanted to formulate, he he didn't do the entire Bible, but a large portion of the New Testament, which he wanted to appeal to black people living in the South, and he wanted it to be something that they could identify with. He wanted to make it very applicable for them. So he started formulating what he called the Cotton Patch gospel, and he took quite a few liberties in this. Uh, He wanted it to be something that they knew about and understood, so instead of speaking of Jews and Gentiles, he referred to whites and blacks, and instead of referring to the city of Jerusalem, he referred to the city of Atlanta, and when the angel told Joseph and Mary to take the baby Jesus and flee to Egypt... He has it. They were supposed to flee into Mexico. So you see how much of the setting of the Bible was lost. And he even goes so far as to refer to Joseph as Joe. I'm going to quote certain portions from his book. I'm not going to call it the Bible. I'll call it his book uh, concerning the story of the wise men and so forth. came to Jerusalem or to Atlanta And this is what they said. Where is the one who was to be governor of Georgia? I'm glad I serve someone who's more than just governor of Georgia. We saw his star in the Orient, and we are come to honor him. This news put Governor Herod and all his cronies in a tizzy. So he called a meeting of the big-time preachers and politicians and asked if they had any idea where the leader was to be born. In Gainesville, Georgia, they replied. And then later on, after the wise men had checked out, the Lord's messenger made connection with Joseph in a dream and said, get moving and take your wife and baby and highball it to Mexico. Then it dawned on Herod that he had been duped by learned men and he really blew his top. So how far do you go? Uh, That's the question you deal with when you look at this dynamic equivalence. Uh, Perhaps there's no convenient stopping point. Okay, this is probably what you were looking at from the beginning. I'd like to look at several translations, and there are dozens of translations, and I'm just going to look at a few of them here, uh, hopefully some of the ones that are a little bit more common. Just make a few comments about them. Uh, first of all, the King James Version. The King James Version, abbreviated KJV. It's also known as the Authorized Version. It's the same thing because it was authorized by King James to be printed uh, typically more in uh, Great Britain, England. They know as the authorized version, we tend to refer to it more often as the King James Version, uh, printed in 1610. It's based on the received text. Remember earlier I gave uh, several different texts. This is based on the received text. Some people might say, well, the King James Version is tried and true. It has been around for centuries. All these new translations, I just don't trust them. Did it ever occur to you that the King James Version was new at one time, too? So if you don't trust a new version, you can identify with the people of the King James day. When it was printed, many people did not trust it. It took the better part of 100 years for it to be commonly accepted. It took a while. The King James is not the first English translation. There were numerous English translations before that, but they were often unclear, illegal from a legal perspective. This was authorized. This was legal. And a lot of those versions were done by only a few men and very confusing. But this was commissioned by the king. There was a large group of people worked together on it. It was official, and a lot of those kinks could be worked out. What is your opinion of the King James? It probably depends a lot on your background. If you grew up with it, you might have an appreciation for it. If you did not, you might find it harder to appreciate it. I'm going to list a few of the uh, strengths and some of the drawbacks from this passage or from this version. Uh, First of all, that little box over there on the left this is just something that I'm inserting in here to give you a little bit of a scale of whether these use the um, the the formal equivalence, the literal translation, or the dynamic equivalence, which is the very the very liberal translation. So this needle points completely over to the left, which indicates this is a very literal translation. They used the formal equivalents rather than the the, um, dynamic equivalents. Some of the strengths of this version are its beauty. There are few versions that are as poetic as the King James. Its accuracy, it is accepted as one of the more literally accurate translations available. So if you're looking for pure accuracy, the King James Version is a good place to go. And also its familiarity. People are familiar with it. Have you ever heard anyone quote the Lord's Prayer from any other version? Uh, perhaps a few of you have. Not very often. Psalm 23, the Beatitudes, they're, they're just not as familiar in other versions. So this is a very familiar version. It's been called the most grand and beautiful of all English versions. I mentioned that it's one of the most literal translations in use, indicated there by that needle pointing towards the literal side. Uh, One of the most accurate, which I mentioned. Some people say it's the most accurate if you can understand it. I say if you can't understand it, what good does the accuracy do? So these are questions that, that people ask. It's easier to memorize than some of your other translations. It's more universal, which I mentioned. Um, people are familiar with it. And its translation style also lends to precision. Uh, one of the common, commonly known things about the King James Version is its uses of pronouns like thee and thou. Most translations just generalize all those into to you. The King James uses, in some cases, thee and thou. Other cases, it uses ye and you. There's a difference. The and thou is typically singular. You is typically plural. And that can be very interesting when you're reading. Was Jesus speaking to an individual? Was he speaking to a group? For example, when he's speaking to Nicodemus by night, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, ye must be born again. I am telling you as an individual that everyone needs to be born again. And you see, you lose some of that precision in a lot of other versions. So it's very precise. What are some of the drawbacks of the King James Version? One, it uses words that have been discontinued. There are words in the King James that a lot of people read today. We have no idea what that word means. For example, do you know what these words mean? What, implead immerse, chambering, blains, when... Those are are words that are generally not part of our vocabulary. So what do they mean? Well, if you study the Bible, you might be able to figure that out, but it takes some digging in. Another drawback is that it uses words whose meanings have changed over the years. That can be confusing. Several examples. The word prevent in 1 Timothy 4.15 used as a phrase, shall not prevent them to our sleep. Now, we think of the word prevent as meaning to, to, uh, to hinder or to keep from. But in this case, pre, prevent, means precede. Shall not precede those who are asleep, shall not go before. So you see, there's a different meaning. In uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Now, we think of wealth as pertaining to riches, to possessions. But the text here, the original, the word wealth would have meant another person's well-being. So it doesn't mean that we're supposed to try to make each other rich, but we're supposed to look for the well-being of other people. So you see how the meaning of this word has changed. And of course, the word gay. in James 3.3 talks about having respect to him that wears the gay clothing. I think any one of us, if we would be translating a Bible today, we would not use that word in that place because the meaning of that word has changed. So that's one of the drawbacks of the King James. Looking at a number of versions here, another one is the New King James Version, known as the abbreviated NKJV. This was printed in 1982. So like I said, most of these versions were printed during the lifetimes of many of us. It's also based on the received text, the same text as the uh, King James Version. What was the purpose of the New King James Version? They put forth an effort to maintain the word and sentence pattern of the King James so that it could read in a compatible way while replacing some of the archaic language with modern words and expressions. So some of those words that I just mentioned in the King James that are no longer used today or used in a different way The New King James chooses a word that is used in today's language rather than the language of 400 years ago back in England. So basically what they do, use the same text, use the same format, but update the language to make it more applicable today. This is the only modern translation that uses the received text, the same text that the King James used. So, there again, it leans very heavily towards the literal translation rather than towards the, uh, the, what they call the dynamic. Some of the updates in the New King James Version, it changes, updates the punctuation. Remember punctuation was not a part of the original. That was added later on, so the New King James updates the punctuation to make it more understandable for today. When the Bible uses poetry, poetic books, poetic verses, it uses a poet layout, which the old King James does not. It also capitalizes pronouns referring to God, which we commonly do in our English language. Rodney Yoder makes this statement on the new King James. The new King James does an exceptional job of keeping what is best from the King James While clarifying what has become obscure. For clarity, accuracy, and beauty, I like the New King James Version the best. That was his opinion, the author of this book. The New American Standard Bible, so you're familiar with that, known as the NASB. It was printed in 1971, revised in 1995, and this and most of the following. Uh, Bible was, was based on the Nessel Island text, and if it's based on that text, it means there will be certain passages that are missing from that Bible. We don't have time to go into that a lot. A lot of people make a big deal out of that. Um, I don't think it's as big of a deal as some people make out of it, simply because doctrines are not missing. It's just certain places where they're missing It does not seem to be a deliberate intent to delete doctrines from the Bible, as some people declare that it is. But it has to do with the manuscripts they were based on. So the New American Standard Bible tried to maintain a literal translation, so they're still pretty much towards the literal side, but this book was very awkward for public reading. It was very literal, but it was very awkward. They revised it in 1995. It became a bit more readable, but then moved a little bit farther away from the literal. Let's look at the English Standard Version, known as the ESV, printed in 2001, just a little more than 20 years ago, based on the same text. The goal of the publishers of this version was to have a Bible that is more accurate than the NIV, more readable than the NASB, and not based on the received text, like the KJV, King James Version. And these goals were largely achieved. It has a text that is clear, dignified. It is still fairly literal, although not quite as literal as the King James Version, quite literal. Another advantage of this version is that it is not as gender neutral as a lot of the modern translations, which we'll get into here uh, shortly. I need to keep moving. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, another fairly recent translation, 2003, uses the same text. This gets more figurative in its translation, not near as literal. Still a little more literal than the NIV, but less so than the ESV. Let's look now at the New International Version. This version, printed in 1978, A new version came out in 2005 and a new version came out in 2011, also based on the same text. Now, for many of us, this has been the go-to version, if we want an alternative to the King James Version. Within eight years of the time it was published, it became the best-selling English Bible. That's something the King James Version cannot brag about. Remember, I said it took nearly 100 years for it to be well-received by the common people that status has been has continued. I bought a copy of the NIV a few years after it came out. I still have that copy today. I've used it quite a bit, and I have benefited from it quite a bit. But I want you to notice that 1978 version, in 2005, the NIV came out with a new version called the Today's NIV abbreviated T-N-I-V, today's N-I-V, which was very liberal. And it used a lot of gender-neutral language, avoiding pronouns like he. And it received an outburst of criticism. A lot of people were critical with that. So, in 2011, N-I-V discontinued the 78 version, it discontinued the 2005 version, and it combined them into the new version, which is more similar to the, today's new NIV than it is to the original. So there are probably a number of you today that have NIV Bibles that are not the same. It depends if you have the 78 version or if you have the 2011 version. the NIV leans very heavily towards the dynamic um, interpretation, taking more liberties, the dynamic equivalents. It also leans very heavily on gender neutrality, just trying to do away with that separation, that distinction of genders. The editor's note... His purpose for this translation. The first concern of the translators has continued to be faithfulness to the intended meaning of the biblical translators. He says, so what we're doing in NIV, we're trying to tell you what they were trying to say earlier. But we're saying it so that you can understand it. And he says, This has moved the translators to go beyond a formal word-for-word rendering of the original text. So granted, some of this is necessary. How much? And I mentioned in an effort to use gender neutrality, the NIV, the the most recent version there in 2011, even ignores rules of grammar in order to use this gender neutrality. I'll give just a quick example or two here. Revelation 3.20, the King James Version. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him, masculine, men, masculine, and will up with him, masculine, and he with me. Modern Bibles, let's get away with that masculinity. What does the NIV say? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. And they with me. Now, if you study grammar, this is incorrect grammar. I will eat with that person, which is singular. So when you have a pronoun referring back to the noun, it's always supposed to agree in number. So it should have a singular pronoun, but there's no singular pronoun that is gender neutral. So they go to this pronoun in order to avoid that. They with me. I still read my 1978 version of the NIV. If I were buying a Bible today, I would not purchase a 2011 version of the NIV. You probably can still find the old ones on Amazon, but you were not in a bookstore. The NIV even goes so far as to use this gender neutrality when referring to God. John 17 but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, referring to God's glory. The NIV, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him. So they don't even want to refer to God with a masculine pronoun. So if you're concerned about that, there it is. Uh, let's look a little bit at the New Living Translation, the NLT, which was in 1996. This was based on the Living Bible. The Living Bible was a paraphrase by a man by the name of Ken Taylor. He just simply rewrote the Bible in his own words. He says, I'm going to make it so you can understand it. This is what it says. A word about paraphrases. Um, Some of my opinions are coming through here. When you read a paraphrase, you're not reading the Bible. That's my take on it. Uh, When you're reading a Bible commentary, you're not reading a Bible. So a paraphrase is simply a person's understanding of what the Bible says. It can be helpful, but it's not the Bible. You need to keep that in mind. Personally, I have very little use for paraphrases. So we had this living Bible, which was a paraphrase, and it was commonly understood as a paraphrase, and the, translator, or the, the publishers wanted to get away from that stigma of it being a paraphrase So they wanted to rework it to the point where they could call it a translation, and they even used translation in the name to get away from the stigma of paraphrase. So the New Living Translation could be considered a translation, but it is a very liberal translation. And the needle there goes pretty far the way over to the right as far as using this liberal um, translation. I'm going to mention one more. And that is the message, which was uh, published in 2002. In the words of the man who did this, it changes the language of the Bible that God uses into the language of today that we use to gossip and tell stories, do business, sing songs, and talk to each other. It is an extremely casual tone used in this translation. I'll read a verse. See if you can identify this verse. Don't be flip with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. In trying to be relevant, you're only being cute and inviting sacrilege. Anybody have any idea what verse that was? Well, this is the verse. Cast not your pearls before swine in the message. Now, I find it interesting. It seems to me like the message is doing exactly what it says in this verse you're not supposed to do. It says, don't be flip with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. This is also an extremely gender-neutral version. And I want to note the... Person who formed this, or who who compiled this Bible, he specified that he did so for people who have no Bible backgrounds. And he as much as said, if you have a Bible background, this is not for you. This is for people who have no understanding of the Bible to try to make it understandable to them. And he even, the publishers recommend that if you want to be serious, get another Bible. So reading the message, I think people of our heritage should have little use for it. It's a little bit like a high school student still reading Dick and Jane storybooks. Dick and Jane storybooks have a place, but their point is to lead you into something else. And I think we are beyond those. I know I'm getting late. Um... I'd like to give a few concluding thoughts here. A little bit of a personal perspective. I, I mentioned that I'm going to try to approach this as objectively as I can and just try to lay out facts. But probably some of you are wondering, well, what are you thinking? Probably some of you are not because I'm sure it's already come through in quite a few ways. I'm going to move now to personal opinion. I wanted it to be clear. This is not objective. This is subjective. And personal opinion varies. And your personal opinion may be different than mine. I expect that may be the case. Um, So this is just where I come out on some of these. Number one, I highly recommend using the King James Bible for public reading in our church services. There's a unity... There's a clarity. Um, I think it's fine to refer to other versions. In my study, I, I read this verse in this way, and it brought out this point. I think that's fine. But for reading, I have a pretty high preference for sticking with the King James for public reading. If you want something that is maybe a little more clear, I think the New King James is a workable alternative. Because when someone reads the New King James, it's very easy to follow along in the King James and see exactly where they are, the structure and so forth is the same. Personally, I find it very uh, distracting when someone reads something and I have no idea where they're reading from. And sometimes it's even hard to follow along, it opens the door to going anywhere. Personal opinions. At the same time, let's not get radical about it. Uh, People do have different perspectives. And I think we need to give some room for that. Um, I've heard some very ridiculous arguments. I won't get into those about other translations. I do encourage using alternate translations. They give good perspective in your study. Uh, Read some other sources. They can be very helpful. I would recommend... um, the Bibles I would recommend, uh, apart from the King James, would be first of all the New King James. If I were looking for other versions today, probably what I would buy would be the New King James and the ESV. I think they're both highly literal. Um, the ESV gives you a perspective from the other text, but it still tries to be very literal, and uh, I think it's a good option. Some of our schools are taking steps to get away from the King James version because it's too hard to understand. and Yet those same schools will spend weeks studying Shakespearean literature that uses language that is a whole lot more obscure than the King James and makes a whole lot less sense, in my opinion. And yet they say the King James is too hard to understand, uh, something doesn't quite jive there. By nature, we are lazy people. We like the easy way out. We often take the path of least resistance, and we tend to be the same when it comes to Bible reading. We're happy to let other people do the work for us. This person says, well, this is what it means. I'll take his perspective and go with that. Let's not be lazy. Let's be willing to dig in and discover for ourselves what a passage might mean. A few concluding thoughts. Diversions can be very helpful. Um, I could give some examples. We won't take time for that. Beware of cherry picking. Cherry picking means when you simply look at all the information and you just pick out something that helps to support your idea. You can go online today, Bible Gateway, Bible Hub, a number of Bible helps. You can put in any verse. And read that verse in a whole list of translations, just one after the other. And you can do that. Read down over there. Read down over there. Ah, this translation says what I wanted to say. This is the one I'll use. That's what I mean when I say beware of cherry picking. Let the Bible speak to you. In Glenn's prayer before the sermon, he mentioned something about may we apply ourselves to the Bible instead of changing the Bible to suit us. Beware of cherry picking. Hebrews 4 verse 12, for the word of God is quick, it is alive, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word is alive. God speaks through his word, and I'm confident he still does that today, and he can do that in spite of man's feeble attempts. Psalm 12, 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. God will preserve his word. I believe that. To whom much is given much shall be required. I think today we are some of the richest people in the world when it comes to Bible resources. We have so much that so many people would love to have. What does that do? That makes us responsible people. We should be the most scripturally literate, wisest, and best-equipped spiritual army this world has seen simply because of what we have available. So, regardless of what version you choose to use, my desire is that you would move beyond admiring that version and defending it to applying it to your life and allowing it to change you. I welcome your comments. I know there are many opinions. You may have lots of good thoughts that I did not share. Um, I welcome them. Feel free to share them. Let's kneel for prayer.